We are in uh, a second week of a little two-week mini-series about why God allows pain and suffering. Bigger question we're asking is um, just asking big questions about God. What are they? What are the questions that you're asking and what are the questions that others are asking and how can we try to help, help us answer them? Because ultimately, our questions tell us a lot about um, our lives. Just some things from life. If you weren't here last week, I'm just going to run through the, the points that we gave. The first thing I want to say is that uh, the woman that I talked about at the beginning who has terminal cancer, she is still alive. She just published a book. Her name is Kate Buller. So she is, treatment is keeping her cancer at bay, and, which is really, really awesome. Um, but these are the four points that we looked at last week. Suffering gives us the proper perspective. Suffering reminds us that we are not the center of the universe. Suffering allows us to be the hands and feet of Christ to those who suffer. And suffering points us to heaven. So these are all things that good that is brought about by suffering. If we don't, sometimes we just think the goal of life is to avoid it. And we're going to talk more about that later tonight. But these are a few of the things that that suffering can bring about. We're going to look at three more. And then I've got kind of a bonus uh, at the end just to help help you on a a question that that I got this week from someone who wanted me to address it. So Uh, The next thing we're going to talk about tonight is that suffering brings out uh, the best in others. I think that was supposed to be my first point. At least if it's not up there, it it should be my first point. Uh, Suffering brings out the best in others while they chat about that in the back of the room. Uh, that is the point, whether it was on the email or not. So this is it. Point number one is this. I'm going to say it with confidence. Suffering brings, about, brings out the best in others. Um, this is a new one for me. And honestly, the part of suffering that I had the hardest time wrestling with is suffering that just happens. Things like natural disasters. When you look at suffering caused by other people's pain, that one is harder. Um, that was easier because it's like, okay, if, if I'm, I have the free will to, to, to be nice or to not be nice. And if I am not nice to somebody else and I cause pain, well then, you know, that's, that's not God doing that. That's other people doing that. And even things like accidents, um, you know, there's laws of physics that happen. And when just, you know, just, that's just life. God can't always be every time... S- you know, there's a, whether that's a car accident or it's, it's in the case of my mother-in-law when she fell ice skating, like, God, we can't expect God that every single time in every situation that God is always going to keep things that just happen in life as a result of, of, of accidents or whatever from happening. But things like natural disasters, you sort of go, man, that is, that's actually, they're actually called acts of God. That's actually the name for them that the insurance people call it acts of God, things outside of our control. So what are we to make of that? What are we to make of natural disasters that cause incredible pain? Well, there is a woman named Rebecca Solnit, and she wrote this book. It's called A Paradise Built in Hell. And when I heard about it and I read it, I was kind of blown away because this is a woman who is not a Christian. And the whole point of this book is to talk about good things that come about as a result of natural disasters. So this is, again, she's not trying to defend God in any way. She is just talking about the surprising ways that good comes out of suffering, specifically 
in the case of disaster. Let me give you an example. There was an earthquake that hit the Bay Area in California in October of 1989 when she was living there. And she says this. She says, when that earthquake hit, I was surprised to find that the person I was angry at no longer mattered. The anger had evaporated along with everything else abstract and remote, and I was thrown into an intensely absorbing present. I was more surprised to realize that most of the people I knew and met in the Bay Area were also enjoying immensely the disaster that shut down much of the region for several days. If enjoyment is the right word for that sense of immersion in the moment and solidarity with others caused by the rapture, the rupture of everyday life, an emotion graver than happiness, but deeply positive. She says, we don't even have a language for this emotion in which the wonderful comes wrapped in the terrible, joy and sorrow, courage and fear. We cannot welcome disaster, but we can value the responses, both practical and psychological. And then she says this, disasters are most basically terrible, tragic, grievous, and no matter what positive side effects and possibilities they produce, they are not to be desired. But by the same measure, those side effects should not be ignored because they arise amid devastation. The desires and possibilities awakened are so powerful, they shine even from wreckage, carnage, and ashes. Remember, this is not a person who has any interest in defending God. She is just reporting as a journalist the, this, this sort of response that she experienced as a result of this disaster. And then she says this, the point is not to welcome disasters. They do not create these gifts, but they are one avenue through which the gifts arrive. So she's saying, look, I'm not saying at all, man, let's more earthquakes. I, I love earthquakes. She's not saying that. What she's saying is when they come, they are one avenue through which these surprising gifts arrive. Um, the other half of this is that many times when these disasters hit, it's the, it is the Christian organizations that are on the forefront. They're the ones that are going into the fires, into the earthquakes, into the tsunamis and the disasters, and in, you know, in Christ's name are bringing practical relief when, when others are not interested in helping. Um, many of you know about uh, you know, organizations, World Vision, International Justice Mission, all sorts of people that, that in the name of Christ care about the people that others do not care about. Um, I thought about that this week when um, I, I heard about, there was this sort of viral video that went around. Some of you might have seen it. So the, the story is in Dallas, Texas, a police officer, this white woman, um, walked into what she thought was her apartment, and she saw a man there as a black man. It actually doesn't matter what their races are, except that it does because of how many times we have seen this happen over the last few years. You've got a white police officer killing a black person. And so this happened. She came in. She thought there was someone in her apartment, and she shot and she killed him. Well, it turns out she was mistaken. She was distracted, and she went into not her apartment, but this man, his name is Botham, and she killed him. And she was sentenced to, uh, she was found guilty of murder. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And uh, after she was sentenced to 10 years in prison, there was this thing called the victim impact statement. And people who have been impacted by this are allowed to, to share whatever they want to share in front of the people. And the brother of the victim, the brother of the man that died, his name is Brant. He got up on, uh, into the stand, and he, he shared this. We're going to watch it. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. 
And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. So this just continued. They had a long hug. And this went everywhere. Hundreds of thousands of people talking about this moment. It brought out incredible grace to have this man. He's 18 years old. And he lost his brother. And he took this moment that he had to, to share uh, with this woman who took this incredibly precious thing from him and uh, said, I forgive you, I love you, and show this beautiful picture of grace. It's not anything that we would want. It's not anything that we would absolutely say, oh, I'm so glad this thing happened. I'm so glad this event happened. But out of this incredible, there's this absolute tragedy, absolute darkness, came this goodness. It brought out the best, and it brought out this picture of grace that the whole world is watching. I'm going to finish this, this one point with just telling one last little story. Um, there's this very short play. It's a three-minute play, and it takes place uh, at a spot mentioned in the Bible in John 5 called Bethesda. It's unclear whether this is something that actually happened or not, but the story goes that there was this pool. Again, John 5, the story is told there was a pool, and the, the, the idea was that sick people would come to this pool because they heard that an, an angel would occasionally come to stir the water, and the first person in after the water was stirred would be healed. So the pool was a real place, and uh, there were sick people all around it, and um, so because the, the, the hope is that they could, to, could come and be healed. So in this play, again, not in the Bible story, but in the play, a doctor with an unnamed malady shows up to be healed, and he speaks to an angel Again, in the play, not in the Bible. But the doctor shows up uh, 
asking to be healed. And the angel says, no, draw back. You can't be healed. And the doctor responds and says, but think of how much more effective I would be if I could be a perfectly whole person. I could be such a better healer. And the angel replies this way in the play. The angel says, without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth, as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve, draw back. So in a way that we don't like and we would not welcome, God allows us to suffer, I believe, so that we can, the best can actually be brought out of us. Again, in a way that we don't understand. to to love and to heal others. Our wounds can give us power. In fact, sometimes it's his most wounded who are the most effective. So that's point number one. Suffering brings out the best. Point number two is this. If we believe that God is in control, then we must believe that God orchestrates our pain too. Okay, this one is difficult. I talked two weeks ago about how God is in control, right? In his heart, Proverbs 69, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So if we believe this is true and good, and I actually gave a few examples of how good things had happened as a result of our free actions. I, you know, I did this thing. I didn't even know what was going on. And these people got concert tickets and I did this thing and went to this place and we got a free elliptical machine out of it, right? So there's some incredible things that happened. What I didn't talk about are the ways that God can sometimes orchestrate even our difficulties in ways that he could have prevented, and yet he doesn't. And so if we believe that he is in control, then we also have to believe that he can orchestrate. He is in charge. He does orchestrate events, and good will come eventually from everything. Um, The Apostle Paul wrestles with this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. He's talking about um, his challenge, and he talks about this one difficult part of his life. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, so he's saying in the previous section, he talks about how he has these visions of being with God. And it's just like this amazing experience. But he says, in order to prevent me from becoming conceited because of these experiences that he was having, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We don't know what it is. Speculation, we don't have any idea, but something that is torments him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul wrestles with this because he says, look, God, what, what's going on? He talks about how good God is, how he experiences God in these surprising and wonderful ways. And he says, so I, if I didn't have these, these, these difficulties, if I didn't have this, this, this thorn that's tormenting me, my life would be so much better. Please, God, please. If you're good enough to show me your goodness through these amazing experiences, then Surely you're good enough to show me your goodness by taking away this thing that is tormenting me. And yet the answer is no. The answer is no. 
he says, what does he have to rely on instead? He relies on the fact that his grace is sufficient for him and his power is made perfect in weakness. God, in other words, sustains him with his grace in and through his difficult times. I'm going to read for you a quick little rhyming poem that a pastor uh, uh, wrote and you can write it down if you want. If you don't, you know, you don't have to. But this poem, it's the first time I ever heard a guy named John Piper, brilliant guy, influential pastor. And the first time I ever heard him speak, he spoke and he, and he delivered this, this poem. And I, I've, I've remembered it ever since. And it goes like this. Not grace to bar what is not bliss. So he starts by talking about what grace is not. He says, grace is not to bar what is not bliss nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. And in this message John shared, he talked about times in his life when he saw the good and the bad, and, and, and what he has had to remember is that God's grace sustains us, not to bar what is not bliss, So that like the point of of following Jesus is not that we only ever experience blissful things, nor is it flight to just leave. If it's it's hard, I'm just supposed to run away from it. Surely God doesn't want me to experience it. I'm I'm going to, he'll he'll prevent me. I'm just going to run away from, from distress. No, it's this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain. And then in the darkness is there to sustain. So if we believe that God is in control, and even this week, I had experiences where I, I was like, man, I don't like this at all. This is a really difficult thing. But God, if I believe that you are God of the good times, then I have to believe and trust that you are orchestrating me even in this difficult time and that you will sustain me. You'll sustain everything involved in this situation and you'll be with me. And I may never find out the good. So I talked last week about my mother-in-law's death. I can't ever sit here and say, oh, you know, I, I, I can point now to that good thing that I'm, that, that was a good thing. I'm glad that my wife had to go through so, so much pain as a result of experiencing her mother's death at a, at a pretty early age. I, I, I can't point to that. But what I can point to is that God was there. He was orchestrating, even in the midst of the difficulty, he was orchestrating events to, to show us that he was with us and his grace has sustained us um, through that time and after that time. So that's point number two. And my last point is this. The incarnation is proof that God joins us in our suffering. The incarnation is proof that God joins us in our suffering. The incarnation is Jesus coming to earth. Incarnate, incarnate, you know, your Spanish, it's, Steak, meat, flesh, in flesh. So, in flesh, God came in the flesh in the form of Jesus, the incarnation. It's proof that he joins us in our suffering. When Jesus came to be with us, he in essence said, I do suffer, I did suffer, I understand your suffering, and I will be with you when you suffer. Jesus could have lived any life he wanted to, a life of ease, but that's not the life that he lived. He suffered. In fact, he suffered on our behalf. He showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he understands what suffering means, and he experienced it. 
in Jesus, the God-man, we have this example, and we should follow him. There's a man named Nicholas Wolterstorff, who's a professor at Yale. He lost his 25-year-old son to a climbing accident in 1983, and he wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And the first half of the book, he talks about just this sort of crying out to God and the sadness of losing his son. The second half, he talks about how his faith in Jesus comes to bear in a situation. He says, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. That is a powerful line. Instead of explaining our suffering, which is what we want, we want an explanation when we suffer. Why? Tell me what good's going to come. I don't understand. What's going on? He doesn't give us the explanation that we want, but he shares it in Jesus. And when we're willing to embrace that suffering that he sometimes brings us, we find that God is there. If we were to abandon our faith in Jesus, it would not remove suffering from our life. If I was to become an atheist tomorrow, it would not mean that I wouldn't suffer. But instead, when we choose to follow the God, even in the midst of suffering, we find that he is there. Wolterstorff goes on to say this in his book. He says, God is love and that is why he suffers. To love our suffering sinful world is to suffer. And then he changes John 3.16. You guys know John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here's what he says. He says, God so suffered for the world that he gave up his only son to suffering. The one who does not see God's suffering does not see his love. God is suffering love. So suffering is down at the center of things, deep down where the meaning is. Suffering is the meaning of our world, for love is the meaning, and love suffers. The tears of God are the meaning of history. But mystery mystery remains. Why isn't love without suffering the meaning of things? Why is suffering love the meaning? Why does God endure his suffering Why does he not at once relieve his agony by relieving ours? And there's no answer to that. We want to just go, yeah, get rid of it. There's got to be some other way. And Jesus himself actually did this. If you know the story of him on the night before he was killed, he wrestles with God. He says, there's got to be another way. I was with a friend this week who was talking about this passage and he said, you know, it's funny, uh, Jesus died for you and for me, but he, he didn't want to there for a moment. We don't tell people that part. Jesus didn't want to die for you. We tell people that he did. He didn't. He wanted to do something else. And yet, he said yes. Man, that is a picture of the humanity of Jesus, if I've ever seen one. And it is a picture that says that Jesus understands what I'm going through. When I say, I don't want to do this, there's got to be another way. Jesus says, yep, I felt that same way. I understand what you're going through. But if you will say yes, like I did, you will see God's purposes revealed. We live in a world of suffering. God is here with us in the suffering to love us, to strengthen us, to be with us as we suffer. My bonus question is this. How do we help those who are suffering? I'm just going to run through these quickly. How do we help those? If we're not, some of you don't have suffering, but maybe 
you deal with it. Or maybe this will happen to you. Someone that you know will, will call you, will text you, and will say, this tragedy has occurred. What do you do? Number one, you don't have to do anything. Just be there. Just go. Don't say anything. Don't do anything other than just your presence. Your presence is sometimes the only thing that you need. You need a hug. You need to be still and quiet and listen. So point number one is nothing. Just your presence. Just be there. Number two, once you're done listening, just don't feel like you have to defend God. That's not the time to, to, to give a sermon, to say, well, you'll see one day, we're going to do this, and you, know, you, don't have to, you don't have to defend God. You can go on listening. You can go on being there with the person who suffers. Number three, when appropriate, you can explain that God wants to bring comfort. You can say, God wants to comfort you. Can I pray for you? You can ask God to be there in the moment and just say, God, be here. Bring your, bring your, your goodness. I can't remember if I told this story before, but there was... Uh, a tragic tragedy that happened recently in the life of this church and uh, a woman who was very close to a woman, this other woman who had just uh, passed away, came to the church and wanted to just talk to me. And she and I and another woman sat in the prayer room right down the hall. And she just cried and, and wailed. Just this, and she, this is a, a proper, it's actually a proper British woman, no longer attends our church, but she was like the kind of person that you would never expect this out of. Just very, very, very proper, everything she does. And she just wailed in that room. It was a privilege to be there. And I didn't have to do anything. But it, it was important that I was just there while she was, while she was getting it out. And, I was, and then I did pray. I said, let's, let's just pray. God, we need you. I mean, it's mostly what my prayer was. We need you. Holy Spirit, come and be, be present in this place. And then finally, welcome them into your life with hospitality. Um, someone who is suffering needs, needs to know that other people are there for them, and especially in the long run. So in the short run, a lot of people are there in you know, week one, week two, month one. But as the months go on and people get on with their lives, sometimes they go, well, it is true. I'm, I am alone, and, and you know, this isn't going to keep. So what you can do is you can, you can welcome these people who are suffering into your life. Show them hospitality. All right, uh, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to send you to small groups. And I hope you can process through this information together. Let's pray.